0: Good evening. I'm Dr. Lila Lewis. I'm your host and the medical director for Adventist World Radio. I'm also a board-certified obstetrician and gynecologist, and it is such a pleasure to have you back with us again tonight for part two of our medical symposium. Last Sunday, we investigated the relationship of novel lessons that were learned in the 1918 pandemic and sought to see if we could apply those to our current COVID-19 situation. Well, tonight we continue that exploration and we continue to look and see other principles that might apply historically and currently. Before we do that, I just wanted to take a couple minutes and describe to you a little bit about the host or the sponsoring entity. The Seventh-day Adventist Church and Adventist World Radio is very happy and honored to be able to participate in sponsoring this medical symposium. Since its origination, the Seventh-day Adventist Church has sought to provide holistic healing to physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual health to those involved. And that involves global church initiatives. With that understanding, I want to invite Dr. Duane McKee, president of Adventist World Radio, to have opening prayer for us right now.
1: Thank you, Dr. Lula. Shall we pray together? Father in heaven, it's with joy that we come together to learn at this symposium.
2: I pray as we learn together on this medical medical symposium that you will bless each of our presenters, bless each one listening, and help us to learn to know that we can trust in you and have faith and joy in you. We have nothing to fear, as you told us in Psalms 23. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shallow death, I will fear no evil. Thank you, Father, for this joy and thank you for your blessings in christ's name amen
0: it is with you again now before we get started on tonight's presentation we just wanted to do a quick review again of what some of the amazing principles that we learned last week we began to investigate novel lessons learned at particular institutions and they were referred to as sanitariums some of those principles in last week's presentation. Now, one thing that came out in the science was very interesting. It was actually applied to our current situation to the Finnish people. It was really interesting to find out that the people of Finland had not only better overall health as far as decreased risk with viral syndromes, but there seemed to be a relationship even with COVID-19. What are those Finnish people doing that seems to be improving their overall decrease in mortality and morbidity? I'm going to invite a very special friend, Dr. Zeno Charles-Marcel. Dr. Zeno, thank you for joining us. Dr. Zeno is the current adjunct professor at Loma Linda University. He's an internal medicine specialist. He's also served as the past dean of (laughs) Montemorial University. And we want to ask the question again, Dr. Zeno, what interesting thing is happening or taking place in Finland right now that might be affecting in a beneficial way their health.
3: Thank you very Thank you. much, Leela, and uh, good evening to everyone. Um, last week, we talked about the hydrothermal therapy as part of the, what you may say, the, the, the treatment and the prevention of problems such as viral infections and so on. So, uh, Just to recap, we need to remember that there was a historic issue with the pandemic of 1918. And I have some data that will uh, bear that out, what happened with the Finns. Things could be as simple as taking hot and cold showers, since we all don't have saunas. Uh, But if you have a sauna at home or a tub or a jacuzzi, you can immerse yourself and you can simulate some of the things that the Finns do. You could even use hot packs uh, to the chest and cold friction to follow up as another means of doing the same type of thing. Now, what happened was uh, in Finland and also in Estonia, they have the culturally ingrained practice of doing of bathing in the sun. And just so that you see where where Finland and Estonia are, uh, I have on the next slide. Uh, a little map there that shows uh, the Scandinavian countries, then Finland in green, and Estonia right below it in uh, in a tan or, or light brown color. Now, let's see what's happening with them right now uh, as of today. You would see the graph. Uh, th- these are all maps, uh, all graphs of what's going on all around the world. But on this graph, you can see where Finland is and you see where Estonia is. And those two are tracking... Uh, very nicely, and there at the bottom, if you will, if I can uh, compare that with the others in Scandinavia, next slide, uh, you'll see where Denmark, Sweden, Norway, Norway is not written there, but it's right above Finland, that's where they are. So you'll see uh, they don't have the same practice of saunas the way the Finns and the Estonians do. If we go back uh, to the uh, pandemic uh, back in nineteen eighteen, this is a graph looking at a study of fourteen European countries and seeing the excess mortality that was associated with the Spanish flu that's the part in red. If you go along, I want to highlight a few things uh, first of all uh, could you go yeah first of all, you will see that Finland had only thirty three percent uh, excess mortality. If you compare that with Sweden, next, they had 74% excess mortality. If you look at uh, Norway, that had 65% uh, excess mortality. And then if you look at Denmark, that had 58%, 57, 58% uh, excess mortality. So, so again, even back in the uh, Spanish flu time, Finland came out better than the other uh, Scandinavian countries. The reason for this, we believe, is uh, related to the heat that is used in the sauna and the cold that locks in that heat. So we have uh, fever range, thermal immunomodulation. This is what happens. And I'm sure Roger uh, later on will talk some more about this. But we have uh, heat shock proteins that work, and they affect the innate immunity and also the adaptive immunity. Next slide. Uh We can see here that fever or fever range, uh, thermal therapies will affect the host cells, will affect macrophages, and these macrophages are part of the response of the the innate immune system. Next slide. Uh, In this, we see that, uh, again, by by giving the heat treatment or by having fever, we can actually modulate some of these heat shock proteins. In this case, we're looking at heat shock protein 60. And you'll see uh, on the top half of the graph, uh, these are the uh, innate uh, effects. And the lower half of the graph is looking at the the acquired uh, immunity effects. And on the left side in pink, we see what happens when we have a, a uh, high concentration of heat shock protein 60, this is pro-inflammatory, and as uh, the treatments go on and the disease progresses and the amount of heat shock protein 60 decreases, then we have an anti-inflammatory uh, response, which we believe will be helpful to decrease the cytokine storm. Next. Uh, so basically, it's not a panacea. It's based on historic evidence and a rational scientific set of postulates and therefore should be given serious consideration, part of a preventive regimen, part of a therapeutic regimen, and warrants further scientific investigation.
0: Thank you so much, Dr. Zeno. That was very, very great review. You know, it wasn't just hydrothermal therapy from the perspective of saunas. There's different ways, as you mentioned, that you can actually accomplish HT or hydrothermal therapy. And you mentioned some of those. But for our viewers, if you didn't have a chance to watch the original presentation, please go to awr.org forward slash health. And again, you'll get a full review of that opportunity. Thank you, Dr. Zeno. Now I w- I have another question for another one of our guest speakers, Dr. Eric Nelson. Dr. Nelson is the associate professor of surgery at the University of Tennessee Chattanooga. And Dr. Nelson, we don't have a lot of research on hydrothermal therapy across the board in particular for COVID-19 as of course, it's only been with us since November or December of, of last year. Your study has, you had just got approval specifically IRB approval for a particular study. Can you tell us just a little bit about that? Maybe our viewers may be interested in joining you.
4: Sure, I'd be happy to do that. I've got a slide that uh, very briefly describes the, uh, the protocol that we have. Um, as you heard in last week's symposium, there are many different ways to apply hydrothermal therapy. For the inpatient setting, with so much personal protective equipment, trying to limit uh, nursing resources uh, going in and out of rooms. We are using thermophore heating pads to heat the chest for 25 minutes followed by a one to two minute thermal lock using just a cold towel. We're doing this about four times per day. Uh, We did receive IRB approval and we have currently enrolled, I believe three patients And uh, fortunately, here in Tennessee, we've flattened the curve, so we're not sure how many patients we'll be able to get into this feasibility study, but we're aiming to have about 10 to 20 patients. Our primary outcomes are looking at length of stay and uh, oxygenation outcomes, so we'll be very interested to see how hydrothermal therapy is hopefully helpful to these patients with COVID. I was very excited with the response to last week's uh, symposium, well over 20 Physicians in 20 different uh, centers have written and asked for the uh, protocol, and they are looking at implementing it in their own uh, areas. And of course, as most of your viewers probably know, there's also a Facebook uh, page that has been set up for those who are interested in discussing um, the hydrothermal therapy and how it can be applied in these particular settings. So again, you saw my email address there on the bottom of the page. Nelson 6 m at yahoo.com. If you're interested in um, collaborating, especially if you're a physician that uh, has the ability to carry out IRB approved research, we would love to collaborate in data collection.
0: Thank you so much, Dr. Nelson. And again, you can also go to awr.org forward slash health and we can help connect you with Dr. Nelson. Thank you again. You know, as we looked at last week, this We keep talking about the pandemic from 1918 in comparison to the pandemic for COVID-19 and looking to the past for possible ideas, practices, how they may help us in our current situation. Well, I'm very excited to introduce Dr. Peter Landless, a mentor to me and a great friend. Dr. Landless is a cardiologist and he directs health ministry for the Seventh-day Adventist Church globally. Now, one novel lesson that we really explored last week that we've already touched on is hydrothermal therapy, Dr. Lamlas. Mm-hmm. There was a section of the population, we had different institutions and some of them were referred to as sanitariums that were doing some very different things in 1918 than perhaps some of the army hospitals. Can you tell us a little bit about the differences in mortality just as review from last week?
5: Well, thank you very much and good evening, Leela and everybody. It's, uh, as we've just been so uh, articulately reminded, last week we saw the conversation on hydrothermal therapy's role in the sanitarium approach to treating patients during the 1918 flu pandemic. Well, Seventh-day Advent of Sanitarium were influenced by the co-founder, Ellen White's writing on health principles. So these principles have remained the core of the lifestyle espoused by many adherents today yet. But curiosity was piqued by studies looking at how these principles influence longevity, revealed in not only the first Adventist Health Study, but but looking at what people like Dr. W. A. Rubel reported back in the time of the nineteen eighteen flu pandemic. And uh, as I mentioned last week in the first Adventist Health Study, it revealed a seven to nine year lifespan advantage in Adventists compared to surrounding community of Loma Linda. This advantage was reported in Time magazine in 1966. And then further questions are being asked yet today. What are the variables? What are the factors that makes this why it is? And um, apart from the obvious abstinence from tobacco, alcohol, having a predominantly vegetarian diet, and so the National Institutes of Health funded Adventist Health Study two to establish the influence, of Adventist Lifestyle and not only the longevity difference, but also various cancers, importantly remembering that cancer is a disease process modulated by genetic, environmental and immune processes. The data coming from this study, along with the sub-studies, are confirming the importance of numerous holistic lifestyle factors. In 1918, 19, Dr. Google published data on outcomes from the 1918 influenza pandemic, which showed significantly decreased death rates in advent sanitary settings. In some of his conclusions in the papers he wrote that appeared in Life and Health, he advocated isolation, what we talk about today is social distancing of those with symptoms from those who are well. He wrote, vaccine inoculation seems to have a good effect in some cases. And then thirdly, each person should keep as well as possible by proper habits of eating, drinking water, sleeping, exercise, and breathing deeply in the outdoors, so having some spaces to, to be exposed to. Well, how did and how do these factors interact Modify and even confound his conclusion, which stated the principal merits of improved outcome as far as treatment was concerned was placed in careful nursing and hydrotherapeutic remedies. But was this all? Well, that's what tonight's panel will discuss because clearly not only what was done with hydrothermal therapy, but also the importance of breathing air, fresh air and being exposed to some some more outdoor spaces, activity, kinds of nutrition, all of those things. That's what we're gonna look at tonight and see if those readily available factors and treatments may continue to be applied with confidence. And there's a matter of urgency for looking at this because now 2.4 million plus people have been infected with coronavirus. 165 deaths reported worldwide, 185 countries. We need to look with some hope to see what these simple, readily available, appropriate treatments could and may do to help not only now, but into the long term.
0: Thank you, Dr. Landless. That that is so inspirational. And again, reviewing what we looked at from 1918 last week, and and you gave the perfect prelude for tonight's presentation, because we're going to take two of those principles, additional principles or lessons, if you will, from 1918, and we're going to investigate them further to find out if any applicability for us today with COVID-19. So thank you again, Dr. Landless.
5: And interestingly, and I'm sure I know you have read his original paper and comments, and he he alludes very much to the the various approaches, but including what was talked about last week. But I'm so excited that we're going to look at other issues, which could be the so-called variables, which additionally make such a big difference.
0: Absolutely. Thank you again, Dr. Landless. And those two that we're going to be talking about tonight are specifically ultraviolet radiation and open space. Now, we've been hearing all over the news just this week. Is there a difference between the urban and versus the rural setting? And unfortunately, this week we found out that although in the past, the last month or so, month and a half, we had hoped that the rural settings within the United States wouldn't be as hit hard as some of our big cities. Unfortunately, as we've seen the flattening of the curve in many of our large cities, we've seen somewhat of a spike in some rural locations. So we're going to look both at ultraviolet radiation and open space from a historical perspective first, and then we're going to look at it practically currently with COVID-19. And with that introduction, I want to welcome Dr. Richard Hart, Dr. Hart is an internal medicine specialist. He's the chief executive officer and president of Loma Linda University, my alma mater, and my personal friend and mentor. Dr. Hart is gonna discuss with us a little of the historical review of UV light or radiation, open space, and specifically the 1918 situation from our institutions that were practicing those things and subsequent time. Thank you again for joining us, Dr. Hart.
6: Hello, Lila, can you hear me okay?
0: We can hear you. Thank you, sir.
6: It's a privilege to come back on again and uh, talk about a new aspect of uh, what we often refer to as eight natural remedies. In fact, every every year about this time, I develop a recurrent disease, it's called a fever, uh, spring fever. And there seems to be an inherent need in many of us to get outside in the fresh air, to till in the dirt, to plant a garden, and do all the things that uh, that God, I think, is in, it kind of entitled us to do. If you look back at the early days at Loma Linda, you saw many pictures of patients outside, uh, reclining on lounges, uh, taking walks, and so on, benefiting from both fresh air and sunlight. We know that sunlight is, in fact, a uh, disinfectant. It kills viruses. It kills many diseases. So there's some inherent value in it itself. But I think even more importantly, the factor of being outside uh, and being able to enable a person to enjoy the fresh air and participate in outdoor activities is very significant. Modern hospital designers today have tried to figure out how to capture this. It often gets referred to as a healing environment, as the ability to create in a hospital, both space uh, and sunlight. Uh, both recognize as somehow having an impact on the human mind, the human body, and and creating a healing environment. And so this evening, as we look at uh, some of these natural remedies, we want to put an emphasis once again on two of those, uh, outdoor exercise and breathing fresh air and sunlight. I think both of them have things that we perhaps cannot measure in a certain scientific way, but has clearly inherent value in what we do, Uh, and and tends to give the kind of lifestyle that makes all of us stronger. In the days of COVID, uh, we think these even have value for those who are perhaps not uh, hospitalized intensively, but have some symptoms of the disease to be able to benefit from sunlight and fresh air as well. So it's a privilege for Loma Linda to be part of this, and I'll look forward to hearing the rest of the ones as they present the various benefits of fresh air and sunlight.
0: Thank you so much, Dr. Hart. Yes, there is, it's amazing how all the way back from 1918, as you've stated, they used to be able to take the patients outside. And again, they had a significant improvement comparative to the army hospitals. Now, what we're going to look at tonight for the rest of the evening is we want to look at current scientific evidence related to ultraviolet radiation or sunlight and open space or fresh air. You know, there's actually been a number of studies in conversation with Dr. Roger Schwelt, which needs no great introduction, but we will be discussing many of these things. Dr. Schwelt is a pulmonologist intensivist. He's the assistant professor of medicine at Loma Linda University. And we are honored and privileged to have him here again with us tonight to discuss current up-to-date research related to these two topics, again, in relationship to COVID-19 for the rural and the urban patient. Thank you for joining us again, Dr. Schwelt.
2: Thank you, thank you, Layla. So the question really is, is fresh air and sunlight, right? What does the science say? And um, let's get into exactly what the science says and you'll find that it's actually more interesting than you may think. And as you know, we are full in pandemic mode here with COVID-19, which we talked about last week and as we said, let's review a little bit about what we talked about, because uh, the course of the disease came out fairly early uh, when we were in the early part of this pandemic. There was a Lancet article that showed very clearly three phases of this disease, the first phase before the infection, the second phase after infection, but before going to the hospital, and that could be anywhere between a week or two. Uh, There was about a five-day incubation period, a seven-day infective course. Some people got worse, had to go to the hospital. And unfortunately, the course was fairly aggressive uh, within days of being admitted to the hospital, going to the intensive care unit, being on a ventilator. And so we broke that down last time. We said that there's three phases that we can intervene in these patients. Number one is uh, the people, the population, and then Preventing them from becoming infected, and that's what we talked about: social distancing. And then once you are infected, there's about a 20 percent chance that you would need to be hospitalized, uh, go to the hospital, you need an ICU bed, need a ventilator, and that would, of course help us prevent you from dying in that case. The, the key point though, is in phase two is there's this 80 percent of people who will never need to be on oxygen never need to go to the emergency room, and it's really it's because their immune system takes care of this. And so we decided to look a little bit more closely at the immune system, and we noticed that there was actually two parts of the immune system. There is the innate immune system and the adaptive immune system. Early on, when you're first born, your innate immune system is very, very powerful. That's why kids have fevers when they get viral infections. And as we become adults and get older, that that kind of uh, attenuates somewhat. We don't have uh, as high a fever, perhaps. On the flip side of it, the adaptive immune system, which reacts to vaccines, which reacts to antigens that are presented to it, that becomes more and more educated as life goes on. And uh, what we talked about last time is they're noticing that with uh, vaccines, specifically the BCG vaccine, which we won't get into tonight, but I urge you to look back at that uh, video, that there is some spillover. So when you excite one wing of the immune system, you actually excite the other. We also looked at a paper um, specifically looking at components of this innate immune system. You can see that we've got squared there the monocytes and the natural killer cells. These are key components, which we'll be talking about again tonight in terms of the innate immune system. And the reason why we focused on this was because because of a Center of Excellence paper that came out um, just this year, regarding not only the first SARS virus and MERS, both of which were coronaviruses, but in conjunction with what's going on right now with COVID-19. And what it showed was that uh, there was a number of things that came out of this article, and that was that there was uh, noticeably decreased lymphocytes, which was predictive in terms of mortality in not only SARS and MERS, but also COVID-19. And that their prediction was, is that COVID-19 would dampen antiviral interferon responses resulting in uncontrolled viral replication. And that kind of goes along with what we see in this type of an infection where patients are at home, they've got the virus for a long period of time before they decompensate. And it's felt that the virus is actually suppressing the immune response. Um, and they felt that the issue was with the innate immune system, and that it at first is suppressed, and then goes into overdrive. And we talked about this paragraph in this article, and it says very clearly at the end, these facts strongly indicate that the innate immune response is a critical factor in disease outcome. And so we were left understanding that the natural killer cell and the monocyte, part of that innate immune system, uh, was not only Uh, involved with hydrothermal therapy, as we talked about last time, but it will, as we'll also see this time, is involved with being outdoors, fresh air, sunlight, and I think you'll be surprised to see some of the things that we're going to show you. So, Uh, This is no surprise to us. There are many companies that have been researching this innate immune system, as we talked about last time, a lot of them repurposing their technology in cancer fighting to fight COVID-19. There was a number of companies that have done that. In some cases, they're simply taking mesenchymal uh, mesenchymal cells from placentas and repurposing those to make natural killer cells and infusing those into patients when they come into the hospital to help fight with the infection. There's a couple of clinical trials that are undergoing at this point. And so again, to summarize the early portion of this, uh, number one, SARS-CoV-2 infection downregulates innate immunity. SARS-CoV-2 is allowed to progress because innate immunity is not strong enough. And number three, strengthening that innate immune system, i.e. natural killer cells, monocytes, et cetera, might prevent or stop COVID-19 in its tracks, especially during this very sensitive phase two where the patient is sent home from the emergency room because they're not sick enough to get into the hospital, but yet they're not well enough to say that they're normal either. So kind of a a period of time here where we can actually make a difference. So what it was that could strengthen immunity? We talked about hydrothermal therapy last time. We've talked about sleep, although we really haven't talked a lot about it, but there's a lot that you can do there. What we're gonna focus in on this talk is talking about sunlight and fresh air. So let's, um, let's take a look and see. Well, one of the first things that comes to mind is sunlight and vitamin D. We all know about vitamin D, and I wanted to make sure that you understood exactly what was going on here. Vitamin D3, as we call it, is really the storage of this hormone. First of all, vitamin D, as you can see, is made up of a number of chemical rings, and this vitamin really is a hormone. So let's not mix any any words here. This hormone is lipid-soluble and can go directly into the nucleus where it actually affects transcription of genes. So it's a very, very powerful vitamin, and it can be used in a number of different ways and is used in a number of different ways for immunity. Vitamin D, vitamin D3 specifically, is activated by the liver at the 25 position it gets a hydroxyl group and then finally at the kidney at the number one position the way I used to remember this in medical school is the liver has seven lobes and 25 is two plus five equals seven and that's how I remember that the 25 position is where the hydroxyl group goes and the number one position well of course the kidney only has one lobe and that is when it gets activated there it is in its active form and it does a whole host of things that benefits your immunity, calcium, all sorts of things. The key though, in understanding why the sun is involved is vitamin D3 can only be created through two mechanisms. Number one, it can only come to you from a, from, um, a cholesterol derived uh, derivative, which is activated by sun in your skin to make vitamin D3. So one way of getting it is through sunlight. And that's why you need sunlight to make vitamin D3. The other way is just ingesting it orally. And so you can see here on the side that vitamin D can be ingested or you can get it through the sun. Now, obviously, if you're not getting enough sunlight and you're not ingesting it, you're gonna be vitamin D3 deficient. And that's where we have a lot of problems. So uh, for years, they've been looking at vitamin D and they felt that vitamin D was one of the things that you needed to have to have a normal and good immune system to fight against things like COVID-19. And so sometimes they would get studies that showed that there was a benefit. Sometimes they would get studies that showed that there was no benefit. And sometimes they would get studies that showed that actually there was a negative benefit. So what they did was something called a meta-analysis, where they actually went through individually with each patient in all of these studies, grouped them together, and they analyzed them. And the British Medical Journal pu- published this, not too long ago, and there was about 11,000 people in this study, and what they did was they lined up all of these studies, starting here from 2009 all the way down to 2015, and what they did is they looked at seeing whether or not control versus intervention, whether or not vitamin D was helpful specifically for upper respiratory and lower respiratory tract infections, and you can see this very solid line is equal to one, one meaning no benefit, no, no different, no harm, So if the blue box was on the left side of that line, that indicated that vitamin D was beneficial. If the blue box was on the line, it meant no difference. If the blue box was on the right side of the blue line, that meant that it was harmful. And so what they did is they added these all up. They looked at them individually. And when they grouped them all together and looked at all 11,000, they found at the end that there was a statistical significant benefit in these 11,000 patients, and that it was to the left of the line, meaning that it favored vitamin D having a benefit. So what did they find in this study? They found, number one, that those that had a level before supplementation of less than 25 nanomoles per liter had a 70% reduction in risk when they were put on supplementation. Those that had a greater than 25 nanomole per liter had a 30% reduction in risk. So the first thing that I would mention is if you think that you're vitamin D deficient, you should get it checked. That's the most important thing. And if you are deficient, you should go on supplementation. Well, the question is, is how much supplementation should you be on? Well, what they noted is that you should go on supplementation and that actually you don't need that much. What they found that had the most statistical significance was those that were put on less than 20 micrograms of vitamin D. That's about 800 international units. That was associated with the largest change. The other thing that they noticed was that you should get retested after you go on supplementation to make sure that your vitamin D levels are in the normal range. The other thing that they found very interesting is that vitamin D is not something you should take as a stat hormone, okay? In other words, if you feel something coming on, you shouldn't pop in a bunch of vitamin D and then nothing for a while. The key was not the hair winning the race, but the tortoise winning the race. And what I mean by that is taking enough every single day on a regular basis was the more helpful way of taking a vitamin D supplement than taking an enormous amount. What they felt was that an enormous amount of vitamin D would actually inhibit the, the, the very mechanisms that the vitamin D was trying to actually do. And so in their conclusion, they said, our study reports a major new indication for vitamin D supplementation, the prevention of acute respiratory tract infections. We also show that people who are very deficient in vitamin D and those receiving daily or weekly supplementation without additional bolus doses experience particular benefits. Our results add to the body of experience of evidence supporting the introduction of public health measures such as food fortification to improve vitamin D status, particularly in settings where profound vitamin D deficiency is common. And where would you see this? There's no accident that this was published in the British Medical Journal. Obviously, Great Britain, United Kingdom, Ireland, these are all countries who are very high in latitude, and therefore would not be getting direct sunlight, the kind of sunlight that you need to get the ultraviolet radiation to convert one form uh, to another in form of vitamin D3. Well, this was a study, and I'm giving you studies here that were just published here in the last week. This one was just released maybe about a week ago, and this was in Dublin, in Ireland, and it's called TILDA. And this is, a, uh, this is known as the Irish Longitudinal Study on Aging. So what did they find here? They found that number one, 47% of all adults over the age of 85 are deficient in vitamin D in winter in Ireland. 27% of adults over 70, who are they call cocooning, basically what we're all doing right now with COVID-19, are estimated to be deficient. And that one in eight adults over 50 are deficient all year around. Only 4% of men and 15% of women take a vitamin D supplement. And what they found was very interesting. The key principal investigator of this study was Professor Rose Ann Kenny, And listen to what she says. She says, we have evidence to support a role for vitamin D in the prevention of chest infections, particularly in older adults who have low levels. In one study of vitamin D Supplementation, it reduced the risk of chest infections to half. That's a 50% reduction in those who took supplementations. Quote, she says, although we do not know specifically the role of vitamin D in COVID infections, given its wider implications for improving immune responses and clear evidence for bone and muscle health, those cocooning, kind of what we're doing right now, and other at risk cohorts should ensure that they have an adequate intake of vitamin D. She goes and talks about Ireland. But those people in Ireland, obviously, it's, it's, uh, they have a higher latitude. They don't have as much sun. Maybe they have more rain cover. These conditions are not too unusual here in the United States and around the world. People, especially living in the Pacific Northwest, don't have as many Sundays. Even if you're living in Southern California, how many times uh, a day, for how many hours a day are you inside? and not being exposed to um, this ultraviolet radiation. So I think there is definite evidence here for vitamin D and the benefit of sunshine. Speaking of sunshine, sunshine has obviously a wide range of wavelengths, but the one that we wanna focus on here is ultraviolet. So there's three different types of ultraviolet light that come through. And here we have kind of what the stratosphere uh, looks like. We have ultraviolet A, And the majority of that actually reaches Earth and we get ultraviolet A light. There's also ultraviolet B and we only get a small fraction of that. But there is something else called ultraviolet C and that almost never hits us because it is eliminated by the ozone layer and uh, we never see ultraviolet C hitting us. Um, That is ultraviolet C is in the lowest wavelengths and therefore have the highest amount of energy. You may remember that from physics. The other thing that you may recall, imagine pulling up to a stop sign and somebody in a large truck who has their radio blaring loud. What is it that you can hear coming through their truck and into your car? It's the, it's the very low frequency sounds. The low frequency sounds are the ones that can penetrate very deeply, and ultraviolet light is no exception. You can see ultraviolet A, which has a longer wavelength, penetrates all the way down to the surface of the earth, whereas the ultraviolet C, that would be the high frequency notes, the higher notes, it doesn't penetrate very far. But this ultraviolet C, and specifically far ultraviolet C, has some benefits that we are now just discovering. You may know that ultraviolet C light is used in the disinfection of patient rooms and in a number of other places. The problem, though, with ultraviolet C light in general is that it can cause problems with your skin, can cause skin cancer, and it can also cause cataracts. And so we have to be careful with that. Here you can see someone using, again, this ultraviolet C light in the sterilization of a patient room after the patient's been discharged. We know obviously that skin uh, cancers can be caused by ultraviolet radiation and that cataracts. However, there was a recent article that was published in Nature, a very prestigious uh, uh, publication that looked at something called far UVC light. This is not regular UVC light. In fact, UVC light may not even penetrate through the glass of the bulb that you're trying to uh, use. This is a very, very specific type something that you probably can't even buy at this point, and it's very expensive to make. But something that they did that was very interesting was they took, uh, this was done about two years ago before COVID-19, so they took H1N1 influenza virus. They nebulized it. They put it into this aerosol exposure chamber, something that very similar to what would happen after someone would sneeze or cough, and it would float around in the air. And then they sucked it into this UV exposure area where they exposed it to this, far field UVC, around 222 nanometer wavelength. Then they took the particles out and they actually cultured them on a dish with culture cells to see if they would culture. And what they found was something very interesting. Here, I draw your attention to these blue dots. These blue dots are the nuclei of cells. And you can see here in the top left-hand corner, when they didn't do any kind of UVC light, you can see this green haze. That green haze are the virus particles. So the viruses are growing very fast. And you can see that correlates here with 100% at zero dose. Then they increased the dose to eight millijoules per square centimeter. And you can see here that there were less viral particles. They increased it to two, uh, sorry, increased it to 1.3, here. And then finally, they increased it to two millijoules per square centimeter, which is a very small dose. But you can see here that that UBC light, this light is very, very weak. It can only penetrate just maybe the width of one virus particle. In fact, it can't even penetrate the tear layer that is on the surface of your eye. This is very, very far. This is not something that you can buy in the store as yet. But what it showed is that it could inactivate aerosolized virus particles. And it does that by damaging the RNA or the DNA. So the conclusion of this study was that they have shown for the very first time, this was about two years ago, that very low doses of far UVC light, not regular UVC light, but far UVC light, efficiently inactivates airborne viruses carried by aerosols. And they say, for example, a low dose of two millijoules per square centimeter of 222 nanometer light inactivates greater than 95% of airborne H1N1 viruses. And their results indicate that far UVC light is a powerful and inexpensive approach for prevention and reduction of airborne virus infections without the human health hazards inherent with conventional germicidal UVC lamps. If these results are confirmed in other scenarios, it follows that the use of overhead, very low level far UVC light in public locations may represent a safe and efficient methodology for limiting of transmission and spread of airborne mediated microbial diseases. And they go on to talk about public places and doctor's offices, schools, airports, airplanes, etc. Why isn't it being implicant? Well, this is uh, the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette asked the very same question. And when they interviewed them, they, this is what they said, the two roadblocks for ramping up to high capacity production of these far UVC lights is FDA approval. However, uh, a couple of weeks ago, and this was published on April 9th, um, my best guess for both might be nine months, but we are now trying to go faster than that. Last month, the FDA issued an advisory that clears the way for use of sterilizer and disinfection devices, including far UVC lamps in hospitals and other public health settings during the unique coronavirus pandemic and prior to formal FDA approval. So this is something that we might be seeing more and more of in the coming months, perhaps maybe even a year. And this might help in terms of getting people back and cutting down on that R-naught or that transmission. Now, I want to show you something that's very important that just came out about a week ago. This is from the Department of Homeland Security. It is unclassified and for official use only. And I want to show you what they have been saying here. This is uh, the emerging results in terms of the stability of the corona SARS-2 virus. And what they say here in their unclassified official use only uh, statements here is that the virus lives longer at low humidity and inactivates faster at higher humidity. They also note here that the virus lives longer at low temperatures and inactivates faster as temperature increases. And notice what they say here, that sunlight destroys the virus quickly, and that's underlined and put in italics. Um, They say here that higher temperature and humidity of indoor environments will reduce viral contamination on surfaces faster. Uh, They also go on to say that if there is no sunlight, that the half-life in hours, if the relative humidity is only 20%, is as high as 17, 18 hours. But you can see that when the temperature goes to 95%, uh, 95 degrees Fahrenheit, that that quickly goes down with increased humidity. So they say here that the virus is most stable at low humidity, but decays faster when the relative humidity is greater than 40% and that the virus is less stable at higher temperatures. Uh, Again here, another uh, slide that's very important. Simulated solar light rapidly inactivated the virus. Take a look at this. If you do have sunlight, the solar intensity, at full intensity, the half-life is literally two minutes. Half intensity sunlight, three minutes. A quarter intensity, four minutes. And if there is no light, if it is dark, there is no decay, it's greater than 60 minutes, okay? They said here that sunlight reduced infectious virus to undetectable levels after just three minutes of exposure to the solar equivalent of midday sun on a sunny day in the middle latitudes of the United States. I think this is really interesting material and it shows us that the sun is very powerful at creating a sterile environment when it comes to SARS-CoV-2. So in summary, looking at sunlight, we looked at sunlight or dietary supplementation is extremely important when it comes to vitamin D and it has very good health benefits. And we're seeing that in studies that have been doing, been happening even just recently. That vitamin D is important in preventing respiratory infections. That far UVC, 222 nanometer light may allow us here in the future, coming up to significantly reduce aerosolized transmission by installing them in places overhead with gatherings, institutions, hospitals, etc., and that heat and humidity are the two enemies of COVID nineteen, and they speed up the breakdown of SARS CoV two. All right, that was sunlight. What about fresh air? Fresh air. What is it that we can say about fresh air? It's just air, correct? Well, let's talk a little bit about uh, fresh air. Now, there was a study that was published here called healthy lifestyles are associated with higher levels of perforin, granulicin, granulimes, A and B expressing cells and peripheral blood lymphocytes. And this is really interesting. They took about 114 male subjects in Japan, largely in Osaka, and they divided them into three groups based on health practices, good, moderate, or poor. And they looked at cigarette smoking, alcohol consumption, sleeping hours, working hours, physical exercise, etc. And what they found is that those that were had good or even moderate health had more natural killer cells than those that had poor health. So they decided to do some more studies about this. And this is where we come up with fresh air. And um, I, I found this, these studies very, very interesting. So this study is called Forest Bathing. I never heard of forest bathing before, but forced bathing enhances human natural killer activity and the expression of anti-cancer protein. So this was done a number of years ago. They weren't interested in COVID-19, but they certainly were interested in natural killer cells. So what did they do? They took 12 healthy men in Tokyo, working at a large company with blood three days before. And they looked at those three things that we just saw in the previous study, NK activity, granulysin perforin, and granzyme A and B. These are the enzymes in the natural killer cells that help kill cancer cells and viruses. And what they did was they took them to the forest. And when they got to the forest, they measured something called phytocides. These are aromatic compounds that are just found in the air. And in the afternoon, they had them walk for two and a half kilometers, which is for about two hours. And then they, they slept there in the forest, okay? In a nice little cabin or motel. Then the next day, they took a blood sample at eight o'clock in the morning, just like they had done before. And in the morning, they had them walk for two hours, about 2.5 kilometers. And in the afternoon, in a different forest for about two hours, 2.5 kilometers. Sounds like a very nice study. Well, they slept again in overnight. The next day, they took blood samples again at the same time, eight o'clock in the morning, and then they sent them home. Well, let's take a look and see what some of the results were. So when they looked at the natural killer cells, they took a baseline three days prior to going into the forest. And then on the second day, there was a statistically significant increase in natural killer cell activity, natural killer cell percentage, and natural killer cells per microliter. And it was even higher on the third day in all of those cases. All of these were statistically significant. When they looked at the enzymes in those natural killer cells, they noticed that whether it was granulysin, perforin, granzyme a or b they all went up and they all went up statistically significantly in all of those subjects okay so maybe it was that they were just getting out of their job and maybe just the, the less stress was what they needed to do that's maybe that's all they needed right just a break and that would increase their natural killer cells well they did another study here again they took 12 healthy men Tokyo, working at a large company. They did the same thing, blood and urine this time. They actually checked urine for adrenaline to see if they were more relaxed. And this time, they randomized them. They had a control group. So the first group went off and did exactly the same thing that we just talked about. They went to the forest. And they stayed there overnight, a couple of nights. And they did the blood tests. But the other group, this time, didn't go to a forest. But they went to an urban center, or urban city, about the same distance from Tokyo. But instead of walking around in the forest, they walked around in the city. They walked around to different plates. They went to a a baseball stadium and and walked around and they take the blood samples and they stayed in a hotel in the urban center and they got sent home all at the same time. So then what happened? Let's take a look at those results. Well, the first thing that they did was they actually checked these phytosigns. These are these, these aromatic compounds that are circulating in the air. And they noticed that in the forest bathing trip, there was a high concentration of tricyclines, alpha pinines, beta pinines. These are found, chemicals that are found in the trees, aromatic compounds. And we can see a whole list of them here. None of these were detected in the city tourist trip. There was one alpha pinene that was around six, as opposed to 2,886 in the forest. Another one that was 17, limonene, and that was found um, at around 100 in the forest bathing trip. So let's take a look and see what happened. So we're going to talk about the forest bathers first. So their natural killer cell activity jumped up by day two and stayed up by day three. And what was fascinating was that even though they had come back after two to three days, after seven days uh, after being back, their natural killer cell activity was still elevated even after seven days. In fact, even after 30 days it was not as elevated, but it was still statistically significantly elevated compared to their baseline. Meaning that if they lived in the city, they could potentially get the same benefit by just visiting once a week, resting once a week and going to the forest for a trip. Um, What about the city tourists? Absolutely no improvement in natural killer cell activity whatsoever. In fact, if you look at day two and day three, there was a huge jump in the forest bathers versus the city tourists on both days okay what about those granuline and the perforins and the granulysin a and b same thing we saw an increase here the light green being after day two the dark green being after day three this held in every case until day seven even at day 30 there was a statistically significant increase what about the city tourists absolutely no statistical significant increase in any of these and any of these, uh, cutoffs. Now they, I said that they did take urinary measurements. So in the forest, they did have a drop in urinary adrenaline. Adrenaline is not good for you, right? It does cause health issues. If you have, it shows that you're under stress by day two, it went from four and a half all the way down to below three. And there was a statistical significant difference in the drop in urinary adrenaline in the forest bathers. What about in the city? Absolutely no difference whatsoever in the city tourists. Okay. So the next thing that they decided to ask is, okay, well, what is it that's actually causing these natural killer cells to go up? Maybe it's these phytosigns these essential oils of these trees. Yes, I actually said essential oils. So they decided to do another study. This time they took 12 healthy medical students in Tokyo and they took blood on day one and four and they checked the urine and the NK activity, the granulysin, the perforin, the granulism A and B and urinary adrenaline. And they measured phytocytes. They also measured, um, yeah, they measured the phytocytes. So here's day one. They got up at seven o'clock in the morning because they're medical students in urine and then they went to regular work because they're medical students they're not getting out of anything right at 7 p.m they were um when they went to their uh when they went to an urban hotel and they slept at the urban hotel so in the city they did not go to the forest they were in the city but at 7 a.m 7 p.m they started to vaporize this hanoki stem oil which is a japanese um which is a japanese plant um and they went to bed at 11 p.m. So they did it for one day. They did it for two days. They did it for three days. And then finally, uh, they went home after that. So this is uh, the plant that they used, although I don't think it's specific to this plant. This is Camia cyper, cyperis obtusa. What did they find? Well, when they measured in the room how much phytocide levels there were, there was measurement of alpha pinings certainly statistically significant and the total so it was there it was in the hotel room wouldn't be measured before never measured it before it was there so there's no question about it what happened then well wouldn't you know it natural killer cells went up statistically significantly before versus after not only natural killer cell activity but also natural killer cells percentage-wise also went up and what about those enzymes that were in the cells so yes the grant, the GRA, the GRB, the perfrins, all of these statistically significantly went up. This one was zero point zero eight, which did not meet our usual cutoff, um, but it was very close. It trended towards that. Now, interestingly, what about urinary adrenaline? So, in this case, the medical students who were sleeping at the urban hotel did have a small drop, but it wasn't statistically significant. Remember, when they actually went to the forest, there was a statistical significant drop. So it may be that these poor medical students just couldn't relax at the urban hotel. So where do we go from there? Well, this was done a number of years ago. There was just a study that was published two years ago that looked at the same thing, except over a long term. They compared 94 staff members versus 110 urban staff members. And what did they find? In the 94 staff members, higher natural killer cells in the forest group versus the um, urban group. And here's an interesting point. In the forest group, we saw that the natural killer cells and the natural killer cell percent were higher in specifically a subgroup population of the males who were a little bit overweight, BMI greater than 25. And it's interesting to me because these are exactly the same population of patients that are at risk for COVID-19. All right, now, what about... What about in in this study? The the thing that they actually checked was air pollution. And they noticed that in the forest, the sulfur dioxides, the nitrates, the nitrogen dioxide, all of these things were much lower than in the urban environment. Whether or not that has anything to do with it is interesting. We'll actually come to that very shortly. And here it is. Uh, This was a paper that was just published last week. Uh, by a group at Harvard University. And the title was Exposure to Air Pollution and COVID-19 Mortality in the United States, updated April 5th, 2020. And uh, the background here was that the United States government scientists estimate that COVID-19 may kill between 100,000 and 240,000 Americans. And so they wanted to investigate whether long-term exposure to fine particulate matter, otherwise known as PM 2.5, increases the risk of COVID-19 deaths in the United States. So they collected data from approximately 3,000 counties in the United States, representing about 98% of the population up until April 4, 2020. Then they fit zero-inflated negative biomial mix models using county-level COVID-19 deaths as the outcome and county-level long-term average PM 2.5s as the exposure. And they adjusted by population size, hospital beds, number of individuals tested, weather, socioeconomic status, and a whole bunch of other variables. And what they found that was this, they found that an increase of only one microgram per cubic meter in PM 2.5 was associated with a 15% increase in the COVID death rate. 95% confidence interval was 5% all the way up to 25%. And the results are statistically significant and robust to secondary and sensitivity analysis. So their conclusion was, Based on air quality, a small increase in long-term exposure to PM2.5 leads to a large increase in COVID-19 death rate, with the magnitude increase 20 times that observed for PM2.5 and all-cause mortality. The study results underscore the importance of continuing to enforce existing air pollution regulations to protect human health both during and after the COVID-19 crisis. And they've made their data public, and you can actually go to the site and, and see exactly the data that they've used to come to that conclusion. So in summary, health, healthy lifestyles may improve natural killer cell ability. Number two, trips out of the city to the forest may be beneficial to our immunity through phytoncides. Number three, it may help those particularly affected by the virus. So we talked about being male overweight. And four, there may be short and long-term effects. And then finally, number five, air pollution may lead to an increase in COVID-19 deaths. So before I leave you, I want to show you a very interesting article and publication that was uh, given to um, us out of the Puget Sound area. And it's called Outside Our Doors. And there's the the website. What they do is they go through a number of studies that were peer-reviewed that show that Having green spaces in urban centers can be very, very helpful. One of the ones that I'll leave you before we finish here is this one. This was published by Dr. Roger Ulick, who found that patients in the hospital, which we'll be talking about later, recovered faster and had shorter post-operative hospital stays and required lower strength pain medication, following gallbladder surgery when their post-operative room had a scenic window view of nature instead of a brick wall. And the link between views of nature and faster recovery time is likely facilitated by reduced stress levels, which promotes healing. And so um, what I will say here is I said at the front of my slide that I didn't have anything to declare no conflicts. But I do have one little conflict, and that is that I uh, live up here in a beautiful area, um, not too far from where Dr. Hart lives. And uh, I say that come up anytime and enjoy the beautiful um, scenery of Oakland, California. Layla?
0: Thank you, Dr. Schwelt, that was amazing. You know, I, I learned quite a bit just now. I have believed in fresh air and sunlight for many years, and I've seen many of the studies in the past, but never put together so con- quite concisely. So thank you again, Dr. Schwelt. At this time, you know, we do have several questions. We've seen some research, a lot of research actually, to show the benefit of ultraviolet radiation and being in open spaces or fresh air. But we want to know how to practically apply that. Everything comes down to how, okay, that's great information, but how do I apply it to my situation? Perhaps I live in an urban setting and I don't have access to the countryside. Perhaps I live in the countryside, but regulations are such that it's making it more difficult for me. Or perhaps I live in the, the, the north, the northern latitudes and it's, it's not as sunny as I would like. Well, I'm going to invite my good friend, Dr. Zeno Marcel, uh, Charles Marcel, up again, and we're going to discuss specifically, again, specifically on the patient who's in an urban versus a rural setting. How do I make practical my exposure to fresh air and sunshine? Dr. Zeno.
3: Thank you, Leila. Yes, this is a this is an issue because we've had uh, lots of debates about living in the city versus uh, the rural areas, and the the research shows that people who are living in rural areas tend to be older, uh, they tend to have more comorbidities, and therefore, uh, given the same kind of risk level or same kind of exposure level to the virus, they're probably more prone to uh, having a problem. That being said, uh, we ought to. Pay attention to what was uh, being uh, presented by Roger earlier. And in fact, if we look at people everywhere, okay, the same issues really apply as the basis for things. Avoid contact with the virus, uh, whether directly or through others. Disinfect the contact points uh, where the virus might be. Uh, increase resistance to the viral infection, and that is, uh, we've been talking about uh, increasing your your own uh, immune system's ability to fight, Uh, get tested if at risk, uh, and if the testing is available, of course, Uh, protect the most vulnerable because you don't want to, uh, to spread the disease, and take care of yourself holistically, that is physical, mental, emotional, social, relational, and also spiritual transcendent. The prevention is better than cure especially when you don't have a cure then that's an issue now how do you bring outdoors indoors uh, we know that uh, that in the rural areas that there is there is some protection already for for people because you're living in the outdoors because you have more sunshine etc if you're living in the zones where you can get the sunshine uh, and, and it's effective uh, for you but you know, opening your windows. If you have, if you live in a place where you can open your windows, even though you're in an urban setting, if you can open your windows. Now, here is the the trade-off. You, you're getting the sunshine coming in, but you also have the pollution coming in. That's that's an issue, right? Uh, open your drapes, draw the shades, uh, go on the balcony, use the parks when it's a uh, uh, when they're safe to be able to to go outside. Uh, rooftops, um, even skylights in your in your home, the kinds that can open up. That will allow the direct sunshine to come in. Uh, If you have a patio, uh, community gardens, that has been shown to be very helpful for your overall health. But again, you have to uh, consider social distancing, etc. Window window flowers. Uh, People plant flowers just outside their windows. You open the window, you plant some flowers uh, out in a box right outside there. The other is, of course, uh, how do you get fresh air into the home? Again, opening the windows, but using plants on the inside plants flowers and even trees being planted indoors or even having a green wall now you know all of these things sound really nice and there's some of them that are very easy to do it's easy to put plants in your home it's easy to put flowers in your home uh trees and a green wall that's a different story um but but it can be done using natural building materials using a hepa filter uh using uh, uh air and surface treatments with UVC. Of course, we don't have the, uh, the far UVC yet, but uh, this, is, this is a potential, right? Uh, pictures of outdoor scenes, as we have heard, and we'll hear more in a little while, I'm sure. And going outside to the mountains, the rivers, the seashore, uh, et cetera. You know, what happens when you go outside, you also get negative ions. And the negative ions are usually associated with the mountains, the waterfalls, uh, the seashore, uh, even the beaches. Okay, and uh, after a good thunderstorm, that gives you some negative ions, and the negative ions actually clean the air. They clean the pollutants out of the air. They get rid of some of those smaller particles, including uh, they get rid of viruses and molds uh, and and pollen. Okay, so so uh, this is all good stuff. The negative ions. Okay, next, of course, uh, we're looking at urban life. And the infection risk. Roger just uh, talked about that, but we need to understand that it's not everybody who can who can have space in their urban setting to self isolate. As a matter of fact, the poor are more affected by this because they don't have the space. Uh, they don't have private cars. They use public transportation. Uh, they may have jobs that that uh, can't be performed remotely, so they, they they tend to have to go to work. People, are, this is this is a reality. And they tend to, to uh, live in areas that have higher pollution. This has been shown uh, to a great extent already. So so part of the issue, unfortunately, has to do uh, with poverty, because poor people in any setting actually have a greater problem than people who have uh, more means to be able to do some of the things that we're talking about. And, of course, uh, the New York Times has an article looking at what's what's happening right now, people moving out of the cities and going into the into the more uh, suburban and urban uh, and rural areas, uh, this trend is probably going to continue after the uh, COVID-19 epidemic and pandemic has passed.
0: Zeno, that was amazing. You know, it really, the practical application I think is what's so important. And I hope our viewers, you know, we should never feel discouraged where we are right now, we can make the best of where we are. So taking some of these principles and opening our windows, like we talked about, even early in the morning, again, is a great benefit. Thank you again, Dr. Zeno. Now, we do Welcome. have another another guest coming on. It's my very, very good friend, um, Dr. Angeline Brower. Dr. Brower is currently the head of health ministry for the D- North American Division She of Seventh-day Adventist. She also is a dietitian and a lot of research experience. Now, Dr. Brower, we were talking about how do we, you know, we have social distancing and we have clear scientific evidence as far as the benefits of getting sunshine and getting outdoors and open space. Can you help us to rectify some of that as, as a quandary? Absolutely. Thank
7: you so much, Dr. Leela. And, uh, you know, we've heard a lot tonight already about the benefits of fresh air and sunshine um, and getting out into the great outdoors. But we also have to remember that there are cautions. We are living in a pandemic time right now. And some of those cautions, of course, we want to maintain Uh, the social distancing, it's still important. So when we are outdoors, we are still keeping that six feet minimum distance between us and others. And we wanna avoid gathering in crowds. I know that there are some regions where they are starting to open up more of their outdoor spaces, parks had been closed, but they're starting to open up beaches and, and so forth. And we're seeing hundreds of people gathering together Um, It's very understandable and, as we've heard, even necessary for our health. But we still want to make sure we're maintaining those healthy, safe distances. We want to continue to practice the standard precautions of washing our hands, using sanitizer when needed, um, and covering our coughs and sneezes, protecting ourselves, protecting others, using a mask when outdoors as well. But we also can think about some of the... Uh, d- potential drawbacks of, of what we've heard too, of, for example, overexposure to UV radiation. We've heard, and we know this, that um, overexposure to, to UV light can cause things such as skin cancer. Um, it can also cause other skin damage uh, that could be precancerous. We also have premature aging Cataracts and eye damage is also possible with overexposure to UV radiation. And there's also an interesting link to immune suppression when it comes to overexposure. And so we need to remember that there's a happy medium there. We want to get good sunlight, but we also want to guard ourselves from getting overexposed, which may do the opposite of what we're trying to achieve. Remember also that it's important not to make assumptions here. Just because we are practicing one healthy behavior that does not negate other unhealthy behaviors. So this really is, as Dr. Zeno mentioned, this is about a holistic approach uh, to prevention and care. Now let's talk about uh, the urban and rural setting as well. The World Health Organization uh, in 2018 put out a, a report talking about the dangers and the particular health inequities that result in urban settings. Much of this is related to political and economic environment, but also there are physical constructs, physical um, um, uh, parts of how urban environments are built and structured, um, and and also the social environment within those settings. These all uh, lead to greater health risks for minorities. And this is an important um, case for when we're talking about COVID-19 because we're seeing that minority populations are hit um, disproportionately. And so we need to remember this. These lead to also chronic and communicable diseases, such as pulmonary diseases, um, acute respiratory diseases, because of the unhealthy environments that are in some of these urban locations. And the World Health Organization is also uh, predicting that by 2050, the urban population will double. So this is something we wanna think about for the future as well for long-term. Now, if we look at what rural settings look like, and this is from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention in the US, we are certainly finding greater risk of death uh, compared to urban Americans. And these are two of the top killers in the United States and to many Western nations. There's also less access to healthcare. And this is an important um, point because yes, they may be outdoor accessible to outdoors, but what happens when they do get sick? Less access to health insurance as well. They have to travel great distances to find healthcare, but also specialty care. And as we know for high risk and for severe cases of COVID, we need specialty care. There are higher rates of smoking, which we are also concerned with, with respiratory conditions. Um, obesity, less leisure time and physical activity. Interesting. And also racial and ethnic disparities in our rural populations. So let's look at one research that was published in 2019, just last year, looking at viewing nature for those who may not be able to actually get outside into nature. And in this systematic review, they looked at 37 different uh, research studies that were published over the years. And they found that um, stimulation methods across these different studies of actual plants um, or foliage in the, in the uh, home or, or in the uh, study space or in a hospital setting, and we can go to the next slide. Um, and also looking at still photos, virtual reality scenes of nature, Also natural materials used in the building and in the room construction as well. And over um, ranging from 10 seconds to 60 minutes of exposure to the study participants, they looked at a number of outcome measures, um, looking at really a lot of sympathetic and parasympathetic activity and also brain activity. And we'll quickly jump to the next slide here. Um, What they found was that there were a lot of positive associations across these 37 studies when you use real natural elements inside, indoors. So floral arrangements, foliage, potted plants and so forth inside the room. But also photos of landscapes were also effective in having positive health benefits. And there were some interesting differences related to the type of scenery. Um, And there were also differences by age, uh, by gender, and also, interestingly enough, also by personality. But at at the bottom line here, is that what we're trying to say is that indoor elements can still provide certain health benefits when outdoor experiences um, are limited or are uh, not possible are not ideal. Um, And this did include research in hospital settings. Dr. Schweldt mentioned one of those research studies as well. So really in conclusion, what we want to encourage people ultimately is to get outside. That is the education that we want to give, uh, to get outside for the optimal benefits keeping in mind all the necessary precautions. But when it's not possible to get outside, when it's difficult, we can also bring the outdoors into the indoors as as Dr. Zeno mentioned. And we can also use photography and videography of calming and peaceful imagery to also get these health benefits. Um, And I think this is a good time to also encourage businesses and workplaces. If you are closed currently, what do you do? How do you, when you reopen, how can you promote this kind of a um, a better work condition uh, for your employees? Uh, City planning, of course, you know, how can this be integrated into modifications or planning? And then also for individuals and families, what can we do for ourselves? How can we make it a priority to get outside safely, but also how can we bring that indoors? And I would like to actually put a plug in for even having some gardens indoors, container gardens and microgreen gardens so that you're also getting a good nutrition source so that we're living holistically. So thank you, Dr. Leela.
0: Thank you so much, Dr. Angie. You know, that was really exciting. And as you and I both have been teaching, I guess you could say, lifestyle, holistic health for many years, I know we both agree that there is a good, better, and best plan. But we just need to make healthy changes, progressive healthy changes, whatever those may be, whether it's, as you said, putting a picture in the room, best case scenario, we can get out into the natural environment. Now, I am actually going to make a segue here. We've talked about the community patient and how we can bring fresh air and sunshine, or if you will, ultraviolet radiation and fresh air to decrease our risk of acquiring COVID and even improve our immune system. But what about that 20% that Dr. Schwalt has continued to tell us about that actually make it unfortunately, into the hospital. How can we bring ultraviolet radiation and fresh air or open space to the hospitalized patient? Again, I'm going to ask Dr. Schwelt to share with us briefly, make it practical, sir, for us. As we think about our patients in the hospital, how can we intertwine these principles?
2: Well, Dr. Brower, I think, really uh, did a great job, probably better than I could do in terms of exactly the same thing. So we have television screens in patients' rooms. We put up uh, videos and uh, things of, of, of nature. I've, in fact, that's what we do at our hospital. We have a channel that we put it on, and, and patients will see water flowing. They'll see the wind going through the trees. They'll see animals uh, jumping around. They, they actually have uh, commercially made videos for this for hospitals. Um, when they can't go outside. And obviously in this situ- situation with COVID-19, it makes it very difficult because of isolation to get outside. Dr. Hart mentioned this at the very beginning of this symposium, how uh, hospitals are being built and um, you really have to have that in mind. So to have a healing environment, as he said, so windows open. And, and you know, we, we talked about Dr. Ulrich's study that showed that uh, patients got better so what do you actually do? Okay, so if you can't, if the patient can't leave, open up the windows, make the room bright during the day, dark at night, make them understand of the circadian rhythm, it prevents ICU psychosis, um, put on soothing music, have video of nature. These, in other words, if you can't put the patient into nature, then bring nature to the patient. And that's, that's really what we try to do as much as we possibly can.
0: Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Schwal. You know, there was a study in the Journal of Public Health, and I was just actually looking at it. It was published in 2009, and it was looking back again as we continue to make comparison to the past pandemic of 1918 and we compare to our current pandemic, COVID 19. This picture, an actual article, it's amazing. Dr. Hogday actually looks at the relationship of the then called institution sanitariums and some other locations that actually, again, brought the patients outside and were able to expose them to sunshine and fresh air in comparison to some of the army hospitals. And again, the results were very, very exciting. And here's actually the study for those of you who want to look at it, Um, but again, we'll we'll, we'll, uh, give you that information later. But as we're continuing to make practical applications, I think, again, looking at the past, we can definitely get benefits as we look to the current situation. Well, with that, I want to bring us to another aspect of the holistic approach to health. We've done a lot about talking for the physical health, but the physical being is not the entire being. We know that. We're made up of physical, mental, emotional, and I dare say spiritual aspects of health. Now, we've looked at the physical relationships of open space, and if you will ultraviolet radiation we have a problem we have a problem with covid19 it's not just affecting us physically it's affecting all aspects of our life financially mentally emotionally and again i dare say spiritually all over the news we're hearing about people who are quite emotionally disturbed by the current situation well that is why i'm so excited to welcome our next guest Dr. Neil Nedley, a good friend and colleague of myself, internal medicine specialist. He's a hospitalist and he focuses a lot on mental health there as the president of Weimar Institute. Dr. Nedley, share with us how open space and ultraviolet radiation can help us holistically in our mental health.
1: Thank you very much, Leela. Well, fortunately, even in the, all the restrictions of COVID-19, Uh, the government agencies have not shut down mental health centers. And uh, even right now at Weimar Institute, we're running depression and anxiety recovery programs with live patients who have traveled here and been allowed to travel for their mental health. But actually, anxiety rates have gone up considerably, as you might um, guess, as a result of COVID-19. In fact, some of the patients traveling here were very specific at making sure they changed their planes from the East Coast to the West Coast to places that had the lowest rates of COVID because of the fear of contracting that uh, even in travel. And we know from medical students as well that when they have their three-day test period, not only does their anxiety go up, but their innate immune system goes down considerably. And So emotional health is key with neuroimmunology of having a healthy immune system. Well, UV radiation does produce vitamin D in the skin and it's synthesized uh, by UVB radiation that was mentioned earlier. And the efficiency of production depends upon the number of UVB photons that penetrate the skin, a process that can be curtailed by clothing or excess body fat, this is why obesity, in some degree is related to less immunity because you're able to make less vitamin D from the sun. Uh, Sunscreen and the skin pigment uh, melanin also have a role to play. For most white people, a half hour in the summer sun in a bathing suit will initiate the release of 50,000 units of vitamin D into the circulation within 24 hours of exposure. A more tanned individual uh, with the same exposure will have 20 to 30,000 units, and a person who is dark skin will have 8 to 10,000 units. Uh, and so you can see the difference uh, that pigmentation uh, can make. Uh, ultraviolet radiation not only helps with vitamin D levels, but it also increases blood levels of natural opiates called endorphins. And this is why sunlight actually has more benefit than just the vitamin D aspects. There's several uh, multiple aspects that make sunlight a superior way of getting your vitamin D than through a supplement, if at all possible. Now, there have been studies done in regarding vitamin D and depression. Uh, this was a study in adults 18 to 65, and it was, vitamin D was found to be lower among participants who had either current depression or recurrent depression compared to controls. And it was also associated with symptoms, severity, and worsened two-year outcomes. Uh, then a study was done in college women. These were undergraduate women from the Pacific Northwest. And this was uh, published recently. And it showed more than one-third of participants had depressive symptoms, even though they were considered healthy. Uh, almost half of those had vitamin D insufficiency. And depressive symptoms were actually predicted very well by the vitamin D levels. The, one of the quotes uh, of the study showed vitamin D deficiency and insufficiency occur at high rates in healthy young women, and lower vitamin D3 levels are related to clinically significant depressive symptoms. Lower levels of vitamin D are also associated with clinically significant symptoms of depression in otherwise healthy individuals as well. Now, vitamin D has receptors. Uh, There are vitamin D receptors distributed in brain areas as well. Uh, And this, of course, involves emotional processing and affective disorders. Vitamin D is also very important in regulating serotonin synthesis uh, via transcriptional activation of tryptophan hydroxylase 2 gene. And this is important in getting our tryptophan to go over into 5-HTP and serotonin. And as Dr. Schwelt mentioned earlier, it impacts innate immunity and the production of pro-inflammatory cytokines that in turn influence mood by activating the stress response. How well we respond to oxidative stress has a lot to do with our vitamin D levels. And then another important area that involves sunlight as well as darkness that's very important Uh, And in fact, there's been a whole article just published last week about how melatonin can help us significantly potentially with COVID-19, is this pineal hormone. It's a key pace setter for many of the body's circadian rhythms. It also plays an important role in counteracting infection, inflammation, cancer, and autoimmunity. Uh, Melatonin actually suppresses ultraviolet radiation-induced skin damage, So if we are exposed to ultraviolet light, we'll have actually less skin damage if melatonin is circulating. And when people are exposed to sunlight or very bright artificial light in the morning or 480 nanometer wavelength blue light, which doesn't have to be so bright if it's the 480 nanometer wavelength, their nocturnal melatonin production will occur sooner and they enter into sleep more easily at night. There's an advantage of early to bed, early to rise, and it turns out that when we are exposed to sunlight, we have a much greater tendency to go into this early to bed, early to rise mode, and we're getting a nice spike in our melatonin earlier and can actually have doubled the output of melatonin at night. The melatonin rhythm phase advancement caused by exposure to bright morning light has been effective against insomnia. Uh, premenstrual syndrome, and seasonal affective disorder uh, as well. And then, of course, serotonin is augmented with light. Moderately high serotonin levels result in more positive moods and a calm yet focused mental outlook. Seasonal affective disorder has been linked with low serotonin levels during the day, as well as a phase delay in nighttime melatonin production. And so if we have low serotonin, and of course, uh, we're not going to get that nice spike of melatonin as early in the evening uh, for a couple of reasons. Mammalian skin recently has been shown to produce serotonin. We used to think serotonin was only produced in the gut, uh, enterochromaffin cells, and also in the pineal gland and retina. Uh, we now know it can actually be produced uh, in the skin and uh, it can transform it into melatonin also in the skin. And there's many types of uh, skin cells that express receptors for both serotonin and melatonin. Well, with our modern day tendency for indoor activity and staying up well past dusk, nocturnal melatonin production has been found to be typically far less than robust. Uh, And uh, Dr. Russell Ryder, who's the University of Texas uh, Health Science Center, uh, and is a melatonin researcher, says this, the light we get from being outside in a summer day can be a thousand times brighter than we're ever likely to experience indoors. This is part of the problem of many people with COVID-19. They're fearful of getting out of their house, period. And we want to encourage them, especially with this program, hopefully you'll want to get outside into bright light into blue sky and into fresh air and actually start working on the outside of your home. Dr. Ryder goes on to say for this reason, it's important that people who work indoors get outside periodically. Moreover, that we all try to sleep in total darkness. This can have a major impact on melatonin rhythms and can result in improvements in mood, energy and sleep quality. And increasing melatonin through light will improve depression. Interesting the melatonin pills can improve your sleep, but they can actually induce apathy, where if we're getting it naturally, we will actually improve our apathy as well as our sleep. But what about if you can't get that bright light in the morning to set your circadian rhythm? Uh, This has been studied now using that 480 nanometer light box. It's a medical grade light box made by Philips. And there was a randomized controlled trial in which one group was given this blue light and the other uh, were given a placebo light, a pale red light that has no known effects. And uh, as a result, uh, they uh, found some significant differences. Three weeks after the therapy ended, more people in the light therapy group were considered treatment responders, meaning their depression scores had dropped by at least 50%. And of the light therapy patients, 58% were responders versus just 34% in the control group. And we also noticed that if they had the Phillips light box therapy, they had that steeper rise in evening levels of melatonin, which helped them promote sleep and it helped them to go to sleep earlier. And their cortisol levels, the stress hormone that can suppress the immune system actually went down. And the study's author, a psychiatrist, uh, mentioned I think bright light therapy definitely now deserves a place in the treatment of major depression. And this is something we will do with our wintertime patients here. They actually get this light therapy every morning. It helps to set their body clock, and they will notice significant differences in their sleep quality within a week. And one of the problems of our screen age is screens actually reduce melatonin. In fact, a lot of people look at e-readers to read books before bedtime, and this was a crossover study, and uh, interestingly, the researchers found those reading on screens were less sleepy in the evening, took longer to fall asleep, and had reduced levels of melatonin, but when they crossed them over, they noticed something uh, different. The blue glow that is, uh, the blue light is good in the morning, not so good in the evening. It actually disrupts your circadian rhythm in the evening coming from Kindles or iPads. And they took nearly 10 minutes longer to fall asleep after reading an e-reader, lower amounts of rapid eye movement sleep, which actually helps our frontal lobe, the control center of our brain, later timing of their circadian clock, and their next morning alertness was reduced. They didn't have that energy in the, in the morning. And the study's author from the National Academy of Sciences said screens can have an extremely powerful effect on the body's natural sleep pattern. So we would encourage you to look at screens primarily, not before bedtime. One of the concerns is the WHO in 2013 stated that the average person now spends 90% of their time indoors. That is worldwide. And a recent study showed a quarter of Americans spend almost an entire 24 hours without going outside and downplay the negative health effects of only breathing indoor air. In fact, 25% of Americans only get outside two times when they're going from their house to get in their car to go to work uh, or when they're going to school and, of course, coming back. And so for many Americans, that's the only time, a quarter of them, uh, that they're outdoors. 77% 77% of Americans don't believe that breathing air inside is any worse than pollution outside, although the EPA showed us it's two to five times more polluted inside than outside in general. And humidity, mold growth, inadequate temperature, and being in close quarters with other people are all cited risks associated with poor quality indoor. And as Dr. Charles Marcel mentioned, negative ions are one of the secrets of this fresh air. It's generated from radiant or cosmic rays in the atmosphere. Sunlight, including UV light, produce these negative air ions, as well as lightning and shearing forces of water. He mentioned the beach and waterfalls called the Lenard effect that are producing these negative charges to our oxygen and ions. And of course, plant sources like evergreen trees also have an effect. Negative oxygen concentrations exceeding 1,000 ions per centimeter cube is what is regarded as the threshold value for fresh air, Uh, and uh, this is something that we haven't been able to generate indoors uh, uh, so much, and outdoors is really uh, better on this front, at least for now, although we're looking at maybe negative ion generators that could have some positive effects. What have NAIs or negative ions been shown to do with mental health? Significant increase in performance of mirror drawing, rotary pursuit, visual reaction time, auditory, your learning actually goes up with negative ions. It can alleviate symptoms of seasonal affective disorder, and it can improve symptoms of mood disorders comparable to antidepressant non-pharmacotherapy trials uh, in this study. Negative ions also have shown effective treatment for chronic depression as well, and in one study were shown to help regulate serotonin, one of the methods in which it could be working. Then two, I'll close with two interesting Dutch studies. One of 300,000 adults and children and those living near more green spaces, this would be parks, uh, green trees, uh, areas where you can roam, maybe forest, those type of things had lower rates of 15 different health conditions, and the link was especially strong when it came to two of those conditions, and that is depression and anxiety. One of the reasons why we run a mental health program here is the 15 miles of trails in the forests that are close by and all of these evergreen trees in Denmark. But this one was published more recently, and this was an amazing study. I've never seen a study quite like it, where, all of the diseases in Denmark are actually graphed by not only, you know, uh, name, but they kept the name out, but residents, where you live. And they looked at the government healthcare uh, diseases of all the different addresses, and then they imposed satellite imagery to look at the actual green spaces. And it was the largest investigation of the association ever between green spaces and mental health. And growing up near green spaces was associated with a lower risk of developing psychiatric illness in adulthood by anywhere from 15% to 55%, depending on the specific illness. For instance, alcoholism was most strongly associated with lack of green space, and the risk of developing learning disabilities turned out not to be associated with green space. But depression and anxiety also were related. And so uh, this is probably the, the largest study and one that seems to be very much associated with the fact that mental health is improved by being outside, being near green spaces and getting into the green spaces. And it can help us in multiple ways as has been mentioned. Leela?
0: Thank you so much Dr. Nedley. You know, you've really brought the picture to us now of the physical combined with the mental, emotional and the effects that green space or open space and ultraviolet radiation play on all three of these aspects of health. But there's one other aspect to complete the circle, if you will, of the entire person and that's spiritual healing. You know, we have we have a full we have a full picture and I am so excited to welcome our final guest Dr. Mark Finley. Dr. Mark Finley has an international speaker and he's also the special assistant to the General Conference President of the Seventh day Adventist Church. Dr. Finley, can you share with us how, again, we're looking at this whole person from a spiritual perspective and how even things such as ultraviolet radiation and open space play a role in our spiritual well being as well?
8: Thank you, Thank you Layla. It's exciting to see the evidence for hydrothermotherapy, the research that's been done in the area of fresh air, ultraviolet rays and sunshine. But one might ask the question, do we have adequate research that demonstrates that faith makes a difference in our physical, mental and emotional social well-being? Are there studies that are evidence-based that help us to understand that faith is a valuable tool, a valuable resource in the restoration of health? From 1872 to 2010, there were about 1,200 studies done in the area of religion and health, faith and health. When you go to 2010, from 2010 to 2020, there have been 2000 studies in this area. In fact, about 90% of all medical schools in the United States today have some kind of course in religion and health. What are these studies revealing? What kind of evidence are they bringing forth? Are people that have, who have faith healthier than people that don't have faith? What role does faith play in this holistic approach to health? It's kind of interesting too, that in 1946, World Health Organization talked about health is not simply the absence of disease, but as complete physical, mental, and emotional wholeness. And, and that consisted, that, that, that went um, up for years, for decades but recently the World Health Organization has included in their comprehensive approach to health, spirituality. So let me share with you very simply three things that the research shows us about faith and spirituality. Three things that these 2000 studies since since, uh, 2010 show us. Number one, faith leads people to make better lifestyle choices. When you look at all the data, the people that have faith will tend to smoke less, they'll tend to have less alcohol consumption, they'll tend to do less drugs, harmful drugs, that is. Um, And they tend to exercise more, they tend to be more conscious for their diet. So one of the predictors of good health is people of faith. Um, If you look at the blue zones, one of the places where people are living longer in the United States is Loma Linda, California. Why? It's a Seventh-day Adventist community, and there are people of faith that are there and that have deep trust in God. How does faith help you to make more, better lifestyle choices? If you believe that you're created by God and that your body is the temple of God, that then leads you to care for your bodies in honor, respect, and worship of your creator. So one way that faith makes a difference is that faith leads people to make better health choices. The second thing that the research indicates is this, faith leads people to be more optimistic and positive about their lives. Because they are more optimistic, positive chemical endorphins are released and the inflammation from stress is decidedly less. So there's a relationship between faith, stress, inflammation. People with faith tend to have less stress, they tend to have less inflammation. Another thing about faith is when the research took a look at it, that when faith leads people to be more optimistic, it reduces the stress. Stress is one of the predictors, high stress levels of hypertension. It's one of the predictors as well of the whole uh, concept of, of heart disease with uh, the leading killer in America. So what does faith do? First, leads you to make better health choices. Second, leads you to be more optimistic and more positive. There's something else faith leads people to attend church more. Now, that's pretty obvious, isn't it? But consequently, they have a better sense of community, and this sense of community produces positive health outcomes. Let me share with you just a few studies on this. Here's a study that I picked up today from the University of Berkeley in Southern California. It reported in 2002 the results of a 31-year study of 6,500 adults in Almeda, California, and, they, and the study said Now, a 31-year study by University of Berkeley of 6,500 adults, that's pretty significant. This is what it says. People who attend religious services have significantly lower risks of death compared with those who never attend or attend less frequently. Then this next sentence was fascinating. Even if you adjust for age, health behaviors, and risk factors. In another article published in the Religious Involvement and U.S. Adult Mortality uh, by authors uh, Hummer, Rogers, Nam, and Ellison, uh, they took a look at mortality rates and they say frequency of religious service attendance was significantly associated with lower mortality risk for all population, as well as for each gender and racial group. Again, people of faith make better choices, People of faith tend to be more optimistic and positive. People of faith statistically will, of course, tend church more. Here's an interesting one. One article came out and said, it's official. If you would regularly attend church, you're 29% likely to live longer. And that was a meta-analysis of, of dozens and dozens of studies. Uh, Michael McCullough of the National Institute of Healthcare. Uh, analyzed uh, studies that covered 126,000 people. These studies were published in Health Psychology, a journal of the American Psychological Association. And he said, we think this analysis pretty much establishes that this correlation of religious involvement and mortality exists. Uh, University of Texas did a real fascinating study. They looked at people who attended church regularly people who occasionally attended church, and people who never attended church. And this is what they discovered. People who attended church regularly tended to have a life expectancy of 82. People who attended occasionally tended to have a life expectancy of 79. And people who attended uh, not at all, they were non-attenders, tended to have a life expectancy of 75, seven years younger. uh, Seven years less, rather, in their life expectancy. What does this tell us? What does this research tell us? It tells us this, that faith is not pie in the sky by and by, that faith is not some illusionary thing for people that don't quite understand, that are intellectual ignoramuses. But to to, to be honest with the data and take all the research together, human beings are physical, their mental, their emotional, and their spiritual beings. And probing the spiritual, having a healthy relationship with God. What is faith? Faith is trusting God. As a friend, well known, it's, no, it's believing that I'm not a speck of cosmic dust, that I'm not merely skin covering bones, that I'm not a genetic accident, that I've been created by God. And that belief and understanding knowing that in health and in sickness, in joy and in sorrow, when I face the challenges and, or the joys of life, knowing that that creator is with me, that releases positive, positive chemical endorphins that bring health to the entire system. Human beings are whole people. Thank you, Layla.
0: Thank you so much, Dr. Finley. You know, that, that again, that holistic approach to health is so important to each and every one of us. And with that, I want to end, uh, I invite our special guest, Dr. Brower, to come on, give us closing prayer. We'll have a couple quick thoughts at the end, and we'll go right into question and answer. Dr. Brower.
7: Thank you so much, Dr. Leela. Let's uh, go ahead and, and pray together. Dear Lord in heaven, uh, we've heard some really compelling evidence today that there are elements around us, every single one of us, in fresh air, in, in UV light, that we can use to our benefit, to our health, and possibly even to help us through this terrible, terrible pandemic. We ask for that uh, that wisdom. I pray for those who may be in decision-making capacities who are listening to us, who may be able to make changes, whether in hospital situations, in urban settings, in our rural areas where there's so much disease um, and and disability, we, we we pray for them and we ask for wisdom on their part, and we ask for the ability and the opportunity for them to make positive changes to improve the health of the people that they serve. And we thank you for for this group who has come together, and we thank you that we are not left alone, but that we do have hope through this crisis. We pray all this in your name. Amen.
0: Amen. Thank you so much, Dr. Brower. So at the end of this conclusion, this is only part two of a four-part series. Again, we want to go ahead and pull up on the screen the next upcoming two lectures. Again, if you haven't yet registered for your continuing medical education course, please go to awr.org forward slash health and you can earn up to 12 hours of CME credit. So next week's lecture, or I should say symposium, last slide please, next next symposium is the benefits of nutrition and exercise induced antioxidants and racial disparity in COVID-19 death rates. You're not going to want to miss next week's lecture. Again, as we look at the relationship of the past to the current pandemic, we like i said if you have not yet registered please make sure and do so we have monday medical mondays as well so that gives you three hours of cme credit that you are eligible for two hours on sunday and one hour on monday and that is able to be accessed again on that same website awr.org forward slash health and you can participate live with our presentation tomorrow, Medical Monday at 5 p.m. Eastern. Then I want to finally introduce our final symposium of this series and that will be on May 3. And we will be doing a comparative treatment analysis of proper sleep and self-restraint between 1918 flu and COVID-19. Again, thank you for joining us. We have time for just a couple questions and we want to bring our panelists back on the screen. Again, please take the time to fill out your CME credit. Let your friends and family know. We're learning a lot of good information here. Okay, well, we're ready for our first question. We have Dr. Schwelt. Yes, here it is. What can we do if we're on medications that cause sunlight, warn us about sunlight exposure? Dr. Schwelt, I think I'm going to ask that question of you.
2: Well, in, the, in that situation, uh, there's, there's certainly a number of medications like doxycycline, that's an antibiotic, but other ones that people are on. And if um, they go out into the sun, they can get a sunburn, uh, a very bad sunburn in some of these medications and other medications. If that's the case, then we have to take a rational approach and say that maybe um, too much sun or direct sunlight is not going to be good and make sure that you supplement with vitamin D. Again, check the level first get on some supplement and then check it again to make sure you're th- that you're on enough.
0: Thank you, thank you, Dr. Schwelt. Now we have another question. What about using UV light or Wallaby system light and what is it used for with newborns that might have a high bilirubin? Would this have any relationship for those of us who are stuck in a hospital room, Dr. Nedley?
1: Okay, well, I'm an internal medicine physician and not a pediatrician. Uh, But in general, the UV um, uh, generators, you know, whether it be tanning beds or whether it be a billy light, uh, are not necessarily reliable in generating vitamin D like the sun does. In some cases, they can. Other cases, uh, not so much. It doesn't penetrate the skin as much as it should to be able to get the adequate vitamin D levels like I described earlier. And so I would say not consistent and not reliable.
0: Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Nudley. We have another question from Janice. What level should my vitamin D be? Dr. Zeno.
3: The, there are multiple recommendations depending on who you read. And uh, basically you need to get it checked first of all, and then you go from there. So rather than giving you a level, I would recommend you look at the uh, NIH's uh, uh, recommendations, the American uh, College of, uh, of um, Endocrinologists, uh, they have uh, recommendations as well, and they differ from one another. So i refer you to that.
0: And Dr. Twelt, is there a specific number that you would recommend a definite supplementation for?
2: Uh, well, the, the, the level in the British Medical Journal uh, hovered around 25 nanomoles per liter. Um, but again, this is uh, every lab has its own, just as uh, Dr. Charles Marcel said, every lab has its own uh, levels and, and it is is uh, validated for its population. So, again, I would agree with what he said and get it checked, look on those lab results, and, and if it's low, have it supplemented.
0: Wonderful. Now, Dr. Guthrie writes, and I saw where someone looked at countries by average vitamin D levels and found that they correlated with COVID-19 mortality levels. Please comment. Uh, Dr. Schwelt to Dr. Nedley, have, both of you. Go ahead, Dr. Schwelt.
2: Okay, um, it's, it's perfectly possible. The, the problem with these uh, associations is that they can be confounded, for instance, I'm sure that if you were to uh, see people with lung cancer, there's a high likelihood that they would have a cigarette lighter in their breast pocket. Now, is that causative or is that associative? We just don't know until we do those kind of studies.
0: Anything to add, Dr. Nedley?
1: Well, because of what we've already mentioned, uh, we know there could be an association. And of course, we're hoping as the summer comes about and there's more vitamin D available, uh, for everyone, particularly in the northern hemisphere, that we will see a big downgrading of the infectivity of COVID-19 for two reasons, uh, what sunlight does to COVID-19 and also what our immune system does in being able to counteract it when
3: we have more vitamin D.
0: Thank you. Dr. Zeno, is an, yes. is there too much vitamin D that we could take?
3: Well, theoretically, there is, because there is a uh, problem that we call hypervitaminosis D. Mm -hmm. However, uh, most of, actually, I have never seen it myself, and uh, we have treated many, many patients uh, with vitamin D in the past, guided, of course, by the levels of vitamin D that they have, and uh, some who have uh, we've treated who uh, came in taking mega doses of vitamin D, and we still haven't seen uh, hypervitaminosis D. That is not to say that it doesn't exist, but it is probably something that is quite rare.
0: Thank you. Another question just came in: If hydrothermal therapy, vitamin D, and UV light activate the immune system, is it contradicted these principles for patients who have immunosuppression, such as lupus? Doctor Schwelt.
2: Um, so, so I think with lupus, it's actually a hyper uh, immune response. It's an autoimmune response. I would say you, you have to be careful. In those situations, although I would say that there is some data, and we covered this in the last symposium, that fever actually reduces reduces the hyperimmune um, cytokines that we see. In fact, there was a mouse model that we mentioned there that uh, heats at the fever range of in a in a mouse model actually reduced the inflammation in a collagen induced arthritis. So I, I think the we may be surprised. I think anything that we do in this kind of a situation, we ought to enter in with um, doing it very carefully, but there is some data that would seem to think that maybe that thinking, which seems very logical, may not actually be the case.
0: Thank you, and this is the last question for our question and answer session. This one is for Dr. Nedley. What about screens that have the option of turning off the blue light? Is there still an element of blue light in the screen light? I read something about this and my last, reading?
1: It is better to block out the blue light, particularly if you're going to be using screens uh, within an hour of going to bed. Uh, There has been shown to be some benefit. But still, even if you have the choice of a no blue screen or reading a printed book, you'll still do better reading a printed book.
0: Mm -hmm. Thank you. Thank you so much to each and every one of our panelists. And I just want to say thank you to all of you who took the time out of your busy schedule to spend a couple hours together as we continue to explore lessons from the past and what application they may have for us currently as we face this COVID-19 pandemic. Again, we want to remind you, tomorrow's Medical Monday at 5 p.m. Eastern, and next Sunday, same place, same time, you will not want to miss out, benefits of nutrition and exercise-induced antioxidants and racial disparities in COVID-19 death rates. Again. We wish you God's blessing and health on your holistic life. We'll see you next time. Thank you.